At one point in this episode, Gerald Harris refers to his life growing up in the South and what it was like for him in the very rural area of Georgia. And then he talks about what life is like for his kids growing up in Northern California. What's in the middle, I should say, is Gerald. And he is the transition from his rural Southern upbringing to his Northern California life and the upbringing he gave his kids. Gerald has been a board member for years. Now he's on the advisory board. He's so integral to the journey of Hoffman Institute and in this process. He so beautifully reflects on his own journey. Please enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning. Gerald Harris is with us this morning. Gerald, it's great to have you here. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, so, Gerald is an energy economist. What is an energy economist, <laughs> Okay, Gerald? yeah, right. So, an energy economist is those people who are in the backgrounds who are helping to determine what energy assets are built, and that could be power plants, pipelines, transmission lines, refineries, all that kind of stuff that we use in our energy in our lives. But you got to figure out who owns that stuff and how do they make investment decisions around building it. And that's what I do as a profession. I've been doing that for uh, over 35 years. Gerald, you are a father of two boys. That's right. A fireman. That's right. And a teacher. In fact, my, young, my youngest, who's a teacher, is going to be a kindergarten teacher for all that. So I tell people, if you want to send me the great parenting award for creating a fireman <laughs> and a kindergarten teacher, just, you know, drop it in the mail. Wow. Uh, but Hoffman helped a lot. I'll, I'll go through how Hoffman helped a lot. So I, I didn't get there because I was such a great guy, I can assure you. I didn't get there because I was such a great guy. So what led you? You did the process in December of 2002, That's 20 right. years ago. That's right. Over 20 years ago. Wow. Right. So what led you to take the process? Well, at the time, I was in a committed relationship with a, with a person who knew about the process. She was a professional therapist. And, you know, I think she actually cared a lot about me and she would observe certain things. But I think two things came up for me. One is the whole era of, of emotional sensitivity. Uh, because of my background, particularly being a sort of like heavily academic kind of person, I depended on, in Hoffman language, my intellect a lot. And it got me a long way. But to some degree, I think I was overly dependent on that. And I would experience times when, I just lost track of where people were emotionally. And I would realize that I was just out of the conversation. I was out of what was going on there. And then the other thing is I had been uh, abused as a child by my parents, particularly, especially my mother. So everyone who has a great mom, some of us moms weren't exactly great, right? 
I think that, uh, you know, damaged me in some ways that I wasn't completely aware of. And I think it was affecting what kind of father I was. And so uh, I got a copy of the uh, paper on the quadrinity process. And I read that paper and I put it down. And I thought, oh, my God. It hit so many things. I was triggered so much just from reading the paper that I knew I had to do it because I, it became clear to me that patterns I had gotten from my childhood and from my parenting were showing up in my life. Is that the Bob Hoffman's? Um, no, it's the one that's actually the, written on, it's on the Hoffman website. It's called yeah. just the Quadrinity Process. Oh, maybe, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. That I do have a copy of No One's to Blame, but this was just a short paper. It's maybe 15 oh. pages or okay. so that lays out the sort of the Hoffman for quadrant quadrinity process and i thought oh man i mean it it just blew me away after i read it yeah and so you you take the insight you got from that paper and then step into the process knowing some initial stuff around overly well, emphasized intellect no you know what when i came into it i just decided i was going to in fact someone said you know what why don't you just take a week away to work on yourself and that was my whole attitude coming into it. Okay, you're roughly in your mid-40s here. Have you ever spent any time working on yourself? Because certainly all these problems I'd had in my life, since I was the one who was there, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I must have been contributing to these problems some kind of way, right? So I thought, oh, this is a great idea. So I kind of went into it really open. But then the, um, the, the pre-work, you know, the, the stuff we had to fill out and the background material, that was a lot. Of thinking going in, I thought, yeah, you know, uh, I was remembering things, you know, that I hadn't even thought about in years, about my father, about my mother, about my grandparents, you know. So, uh, in fact, during the process, I, I had so many, I guess, deep memories, stuff that was sort of buried in that came up in the process that explained so many things to me about how I thought about life and how what decisions I made and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So lots of reflections during your process. What do you remember? Do you have some moments in time? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Two experiences I'll share with you during the process, right? So remember I had this super intellect, right? And I mean, let me be honest with you, okay? I was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate from college. I had a full tuition academic scholarship to college. From there, I went to the University of Chicago, which is one of the hardest schools in the world. Get in. So my whole intellect was just super pumped up, right? So right in the middle of the process, I'm not, this is early on, I'm really not, to some degree, I'm, I'm, I'm observing the process, right? So then I decided I would critique the process. And one of my teachers said, so why do you think you should do that? And I went, oh my God, he's right. Okay. There's your intellect. There's your control thing. There's your, you have to be the smartest guy in the room. So many of my patterns were just sitting there. I went, wow, yeah, you're right. The other one that got me was um, the exercise on projection, right? Where someone during the process comes up to you and says, you know, when you did X, I perceived you as blah, 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 right? And I was like, well, wait a minute, I wasn't even <laughs> trying to be any of that, right? And then I did that to someone else, and they were like, oh, no, that, you know, 
wasn't really where where it was at at all. And so then it got clear to me that when you add the intellect with projection, when I'm projecting something onto someone else, it's not them. Oh, that was huge. That was huge. I mean, that that opened me up totally to being a better listener, the importance of being patient, the importance of asking questions, the real importance of respecting the other person at a deeper level, as opposed to my just, you know, this is what you are. I'm naming you. I'm judging you. I'm, I'm projecting onto you. That was huge for me. That happens later in the week where people have a chance to understand how they relate to each other in yeah. the process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me add one more thing about my background here. So, you know, I grew up in the Deep South with a people now would call a conservative Christian holy roller background. So here you have this kid that's trained to think that there is a right, there's a wrong, people commit sins that should be punished. That whole, you know, head trip, the whole self-righteousness of all of that, well, that was stacked in there too. So not only could I just sort of say, you know, you were wrong, well, I would probably say you're wrong and God sees that you're wrong. My God, by the way, not yours, but see what I mean? So I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally wound up here. Share a little bit about where you learned that and your parents and, yeah. and how you grew up in that environment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I tell people that there is no place in the United States, I don't think, that's similar to where I was born. Because where I was born in the outskirts of Atlanta, a little town called Hape, not Hate, H-A-P, Hapeville, Georgia, is famous for being the home of the original Chick-fil-A. So for all you Chick-fil-A fans, you know what I'm talking about, right? But there was a little town on the other side of the railroad track where black families had settled coming out of sharecropping in rural Alabama. And that's where my parents and grandparents came from. So we were in these little raggedy little houses with no indoor plumbing, no indoor gas or anything like that. I mean, really dirt poor people. And for the first five or six years of my life, that's where I grew up. But the thing about it, it was it was a village. And everybody knew everybody. And everybody was related to everybody. So my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, right? And so it was, even though we were poor, you know, when you're a young kid, you don't know you're poor because you just, this is what it is, right? So if I was out playing with my cousins or my next door neighbors or climbing trees or eating, you know, peaches off the tree or pecans from another tree or whatever, I didn't, you know, it was wonderful for me. You know, it was a really small little little place. And, uh, you know, I lived there until I was really seven or eight years old. And both my grandparents were there. In fact, I tell people, when I think about history, my grandfather was illiterate. And both my sons have college degrees, and I have a master's degree. That's how fast the change was. Your, your grandfather was illiterate. Both, both your grandparents. Were, both my grandfathers were illiterate. Grand, grand. My, my grandmother on my father's side graduated from high school. But that was because she was like an Obama. She was half white. And so her white family made sure she got a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. And that made a big difference in my family. But yeah, we're, I'm from way back there. But then uh, when I was about five or six years old, uh, there was something called the Great Migration, where African-Americans were going into the in industrial plants in the 
in, in the Northeast, Chicago. My, my mother decided to go to Chicago in the middle of winter in December, dragged me along so she could go and work in a lighting factory on an assembly line. So this great migration where black people move from the South and the farming yes. to the manufacturing That's right. uh, of the Northeast. And, at, and At minimum, peace kind of wages, right? So it was still, you know, you're still dirt poor. But for me as a child, the trauma of moving out of Atlanta into Chicago in the dead of winter, it was so cold. And, you know, we had Atlanta clothing on. We didn't have Chicago. Our clothing was like this little thin cotton stuff we wore in the South. Oh, I mean, I must have froze to death, right? But from that moment on, I knew the first thing I did when I, wanted, when I grew up, I wanted to get out of Chicago. <laughs> it took me a while to get out of there. It wasn't as bad a town as I thought, but as a child, it was really traumatizing. Yeah. You mentioned that as a child, you don't know you're poor. And I'm curious, you mentioned also about being abused by your mom. Did you know that you were being abused by your mom? This is such a great question because, you know, in the African-American community, mothers are on pedestal. They're on pedestals. Yeah. I mean, in fact, if you want to get into a fight, say something about somebody's mother, right? So particularly in the Deep South, right? So I really didn't face up to that completely until, until the process because I was an only child raised by a single parent. So she did everything she could to, you know, raise me as best she could into these poverty conditions, right? And she was a Christian. She taught me a lot of good Christian values. She wasn't all bad. No one's all bad, right? But, you know, people believe that if you spare the rod, spoil, spoil the child, that whatever they, that term is. But you basically, you got a whooping for everything. You, you forgot your gloves. You got a whooping for that. <laughs> you know, whatever it was, right? Now, as I look back on it, I realize it was, it was abuse. And I, I, you know, even in my, even in my family, they kind of knew that because very often when I grew up, people would take me away from my mother. My grandparents would come and get me and take me away. As a way of helping you, protecting you, yeah, right. They knew you. they knew she was she was over the top. How did your process support you in navigating your relationship with your mom? Well, when I took the process, my mother had passed. But it made me take her off the pedestal, do a serious assessment, and then also look at what patterns of hers was I repeating in the raising of my children. Now, my children only got one spanking from me in their entire life. I got like two or three a week. <laughs> you see what I mean? But what I realized is that, oh, wait a minute. The fact that I felt justified and punishing them really came from that pattern I got from my mother, right? How old were your kids when you took the process? Oh, they were probably oh, 7 and 12. So you're right in the thick of fatherhood. Oh, totally. As you take the process. That's right. You you understand a lot of what happened with you as a child and your mom. Oh, totally. In fact, we had a we had a two hour session with a therapist, me and my sons and a therapist, one on one on this exact issue. After the process, after the process. And what was that about? It was about me explaining to them who I was, how I grew up, why I was that way and why I was wrong. And I'm sorry. 
And how did they receive it? Changed everything. Changed everything. They understood me better. You know, it's interesting. You raise your children, but sometimes they don't know you because you don't explain yourself. You know, my, my sons now say, well, dad, between how you grew up, not only on, you know, rural Atlanta, but gang infested south side of Chicago. <laughs> we grew up in the hills of Montclair with, you know, a house being driven to school and back, you know, by our mother who wasn't working and we had everything. So we didn't have the life you had. So now they have a whole deeper understanding. Did they go on to take the process? Neither one of them have, but we went through years of therapy. And I've I, I told them both, when you're ready, when you want to, let me know. And I would hope that they would do it prior to getting married. I think it would make them better husbands. How did the process support you in having that conversation with that therapist for that hour and a half? One thing that the process, and I will tell anybody, does is it gives, at least for me, it gave me a heart-centered way of communicating. A heart-centered way of communicating. Right. Not an intellectual mental way of communicating. That's a whole different thing. Communicating with an open heart not only makes me a better listener, but it makes me more emotionally present during the time, which opens up space for whoever, and particularly with my boys, it opened up space for them to share how they were feeling without, you know, watching for some intellect that's going to analyze and judge. It had a huge impact on your parenting as a father. How else did the process oh, support you? I think it made me a better, I would say, consultant, employer, worker. You know, when you're trying to help people in business make decisions, they're not all intellectual. I mean, there's a certain amount of analytical rigor, but at the same time, people need to be heard. They have different backgrounds to give them different points of view. And so learning how to be a better listener and then learning how to ask questions in such a way that allows people to come out, to come forward. In the business I'm, I'm in, I spend a lot of time doing what's called scenario uh, creation, which is creating these various stories about the future. And then you, you take your strategy or your company and you place it in these different worlds and you see how it works. Right? That's the core of what I do in terms of scenarios. So let me just get this straight. Yeah. You create projections of what the future will look like. That's right. And then see your company's role. That's right. Within that projection. That's right. That's right. Okay. And we call these scenarios. And it's sort of like a, a narrative story that says, oh, well, in 10 years, these things are going to happen with the economy. Things, these may happen in your markets. These things may happen with your competitors. And all of a sudden, here's this world you're, you're living in, right? And here's your, here's your company. We give you three or four of those. So they're all different. And now you have a different way of thinking about, oh, well, in these circumstances, we would do this. These kind of risks might be over here. These kind of opportunities might be over here. So it's a really open thinking process. But there's a certain amount of deep listening, emotional sensitivity to bring that out. So, for example, someone may have a crazy idea about the future. Your job is not to say it's crazy. You can't say that, right? Your job is to say, oh, you know, tell me more about that. And how, how do you think that's going to occur? Because 
as we know, the future is unpredictable and a lot of crazy things happen, right? And you may have someone that has really thought about this and uh, it may expose some real opportunity or risk that you need to think about. So by, by allowing more emotional sensitivity and less intellect, you actually deepen the understanding of that future projection. Right. And, and you allow people the space to put forth their ideas and, and in, without judgment and criticism, without judgment and criticisms, which might have come from the intellect. Totally. And there's plenty of room for that, right? You know, the other place I would probably say that the Hoffman process helped me this, outside just the intellect and the emotional space is the spiritual space. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with your spiritual self. Yeah. So remember, I was this holy roller, sin, you know, <laughs> You're going to go to hell, we're going to go to heaven, you know, kind of person. Everything was black and white, you know, that kind of thing. You know, there's a part in the process where you contact or or create this relationship with your deep spiritual guy. Now, when I grew up being a Christian, of course, that deep spiritual God God had to be Jesus. When I went into the process, I had begun to, to read Buddhist thought and other kinds of thought, right? But when I came out of the process, what became clear to me is that the fundamental rightness and wrongness, the fundamental ability to be compassionate toward another, to forgive another, that really is not, re- it's not tied to any particular religion. I need to free that from this sort of cast of Christianity. Not that Christianity is bad, right? But I had to open the thing up because when I really began to think about my deep spiritual guide, it was like, well, you can't go around saying because this person's a, you know, some other religion that they don't deserve, they don't know, you need to change them, all this kind of business, right? Forget all that. If if I'm coming from my deep spiritual space, which is really about love, forgiveness, kindness, compassion, justice, I just need to hold that space. And so there's, there's parts of the process, right, that I realized, oh, that's really what this is. And more importantly, it became a deeper part of me as a person, irrespective of what was written somewhere, somewhere else, because I had to now go out and live that. I had to treat people that way. How do you contrast that with the Holy Roller? Oh, the Holy Roller is just in judgment, man. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, the Holy Roller says there's a... Uh, a them and an us. It's us over here, we're the good people. And everybody else over there who doesn't believe what we believe is a them over there. That's the problem. What was it like to transition out of that modality, out of that orientation, and into this more deeper connected to... Oh, uh, it, it led to years of reading wide range of different texts. I actually joined a a New Thought church associated with Michael Beckwith, you know, out of L.A., you know, started reading his stuff, just, you know, opened up my whole way of, in fact, I still work on it, you know, I mean, I still, in my meditations or my readings or whatever, I'm still at a place where I want to be in connection with that spiritual guide so as I'm moving through life. If I face a challenge or an opportunity or whatever, that I'm in connection with that in a way that it allows me to 
see better. I'll just use that word. <laughs> see better. Yeah. Beautiful. So you must have been continued to be inspired by the Hoffman process and your experience because in 2007, you joined the board. In 2012, you become board chair. And then for the next 10 years, from 2012 to 2022, just a couple few months ago, you resigned as the board chair after 10 years, and now you're on the advisory board. Right. Is that right? right. Coming into the advisory board, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. what was it like to fill that role in being a board member of yeah. this nonprofit called the Hoffman Institute? The good thing about the Hoffman board, the entire time I've been on there, is it's managed to attract a high quality of really good people. And importantly, it, it doesn't attract people who have an agenda. It attracts people who really want to give back, particularly because in most cases, well, in all cases, you have to have done the process to get on the board in the first place. And so more people come out of the process with a, you know, a changed view of the world. In fact, I, most people probably don't know this, but you know, all Hoffman board meetings start with a meditation. I was curious. Uh, so yeah. you're sitting around the table a bunch right. of graduates. No, 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 no. We start with a meditation because the whole point of that is to get people to understand that what we're talking about here is not widgets, right? We're not... <laughs> It's not manufacturing here. I tell people, you know, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the business of, of, of changing the human heart and human psyche. That's, that's not a widget. So you got to be in a total different frame of mind if that's what your business is. So the good thing is we've had, I mean, I, the, the, I've had the pleasure of serving with some wonderful people. In fact, when I left the board a few months ago, it was because we had got such a good team of people. And I think, you know, let someone else be chair. Let someone else, you know, work closely with the management team. and and. I mean, we just have so many, so many good people who make tremendous contributions to the organization. But, but what I say about the Hoffman board experience is that because the core of the Hoffman process is about giving the participant a way to make their lives better, it's about serving the person who's in the class. So it's not profit-driven. It's not oh, you know, we got to have more of this. It's not some, you know, money grubbing thing going here, right? And the other thing is like, it's not a cult. We're not trying to convert you to something so you send us money forever, you know? We're not trying to do any of that stuff, right? We don't care about that, right? That, that makes it a whole lot easier because of the cleanness, the purity with what Hoffman is actually all about. Well, let's see, you're on the board almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. What have you noticed over time that's changed for the Institute? I think two things I think that's changed since, since I've been here. One is the uh, diversity of the teaching core now. A lot of different kinds of people there. We sort of, right around the edges, modernized the tools and stuff in the process so it became more culturally and socially relevant to you know, this current group of people. And then, of course, you know, we did survive a fire, you know, that <laughs> burned the place down. It was, you know, it was quite a task there. But, you know, now we've got a new location. So that was, you know, clearly a, a huge uh, challenge. I mean, I, there are few things outside of my family that have ripped my heart out. That was one of them. When I saw the pictures, I was, I think I must have cried for at least 10 or 15 minutes. 
as a 67 year old man. Right. And then I just, I was, I, I couldn't, I could barely talk. I mean, I was just so, I mean, I had so many memories there. I mean, as a board chair, bear in mind, you got a lot of, you know, graduation ceremonies and that kind of thing. And you hear incredible life stories and you meet people and just all of that was just tied up in that, in that place and that experience. I want to ask about, um, you mentioned your experience growing up in the South and, and as an African-American. What is the Venn diagram of the Hoffman process and what it does around healing with race and your own upbringing mm-hmm. as a Black man in this country? How do you see yeah. those two related? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's something I, I continue to give some thought to. But, but let, let, let me say this. Here's where I think it, I think, here's where I think it overlaps. I think it overlaps in the heart space. If you read Dr. King, and I went to Morehouse College where Dr. King went there, so of course I'm a big Dr. King fan, right? When you really hear what he's saying about the United States and it living up to the true meaning of its creed, you know, Dr. King loved America. He loved people. He loved black people as well as poor white people. A lot of what he was talking about was for the poor. So that is because I think he had a he had a heart. He had a he saw the tragedy of things that people were going through, right? Well, Hoffman is also a heart-centered process. So I will say this. If you go through the Hoffman process and have a genuine experience of it, a genuine experience of compassion and forgiveness that cracks your heart then you should be uncomfortable blatantly discriminating or mistreating someone because of their race or their sexuality or whatever. Because something in your heart is going to tell you, whatever that deep spiritual guide is going to tell you, like, hey, you know, something's wrong with that. Now, you can ignore it if you want to, as you know, that that's a bad idea, right? But see, I think where these things come across that is in that heart space, right? Because Diversity, inclusion, and acceptance means I accept you as a person. Well, that, that's because I'm, I have an open heart. I have an open mind. And I'm not judging you based on some external thing. I want to know, hey, Drew, who are you? What are you thinking? What's your background? What was your life experience? How do you see this? What, what knowledge and special skills do you have, right? So that has nothing to do with any exterior. It has to do with the totality of you. And so if you come out of the hopping process with a totality of your own self, then shouldn't that make it easier for you to accept the totality of another person? And it increases that curiosity. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. So I, I would say that I don't think Hoffman is the cure to racism or anything like that. But I think it can make a big contribution to it. You know, if I go back to my Christian holy roller kind of thing, one of the things that's really true about that is it talks about a conversion and a transformation you have to make to become a true Christian, right? That Jesus is in your heart. They say you are saved after you've given your heart to Jesus and you've had this conversion experience, right? That's why you get baptized in this water. 
Well, Hoffman is a conversion experience, too, if you do it the right way, without the water. <laughs> Gerald, will you say a little bit more about that? I'm smiling here. It's like I see the relationship, yeah. the, the Christian foundation of the conversion experience, yeah. and Hoffman is that as well. Yes. Right. It's a conversion experience in the sense that, well, let me give you a classic example. If I can forgive in the process the abuse of my mother, if I can forgive in the process the abandonment of me as a child by my father, because he wasn't around, and then I can go through a compassionate way of thinking about both of them. Well, what was it like when they were 18 and they had this little kid and they were in the South and they came out of poverty? Maybe there was only so much they could do. Maybe there was only so much they had. So now, through this process, there's a whole level of compassion and understanding that's evolved out of that. Well, that's a conversion experience, right? Because the conversion has to be in the heart, in the mind. It has to have a new understanding. To me, that's ultimately what genuine Christianity is all about. But I'm not going to argue with these Christians about all these things, so please leave me alone. <laughs> but, I mean, that's just my personal view of it. Yeah. Gerald, I want to ask, because in the process we talk about cheap forgiveness, oh, yeah. where you go to forgiveness too quickly. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning, there's a piece of using your voice, standing up, saying what you couldn't say as a kid. So do you remember in your early part of your process during your week of speaking a truth that perhaps you couldn't speak as a kid where you got upset with your parents and called them out and held them accountable and said things. For sure. I mean, like I said, this process of taking my mother off the pedestal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, sometimes <laughs> I talk to people, I say, well, you know, my mother was crazy. Right. I said, people, what do you mean your mother is crazy? Right. And I said, well, there was a part of her that was, that was crazy because you, you shouldn't go out and find a branch off of a tree and beat a kid till a kid bleeds because they left their gloves at school. Come on. No. And even to then find compassion. Right. In the midst of that kind of behavior towards oh. you as a little kid. Well, because you have to ask yourself. I mean, one thing about going through the process and going back to when you were four or three years old, not only are you going back to when you were there, but what age were your parents? Where were they at? What were they doing? That's what I mean, where the compassion comes in. It's like, oh, wait a minute. My mother had me at 18. I mean, she was pregnant at 17. She dropped out of high school in 10th grade. So what does she know? And I'm pretty sure she wasn't trying to get pregnant, if you get my drift. Because my father at the time had left and gone and joined the Army, come back, was finishing his degree in college, right? And all of a sudden, his old girlfriend from the old neighborhood is pregnant. That's me. <laughs> right? So you think about that and you go, oh, Jesus, man, these, oh, no. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, this is, this is no, no. What's it like to remember all this and reflect on your childhood and your process time and your life as a board member? Where I use it is in two things. One is 
why do I see this the way I see it? Why did I decide that? Whatever. And be really honest with someone about what I'm thinking, right? And where it comes from. I mean, I, I have a guy I've been working with for about a decade. And sometimes we're dealing with some issue with a client. And I will say, oh, Richard, the reason I'm thinking this is because I got triggered by this thing over here that's affecting how I'm thinking about this, right? So this is not about you. This is really about me being triggered by this particular thing. So now I have that conversation. I can be open and honest about that. The other place I use it is every once in a while, still, since I'm human, I get mad. I explode. And I'm like, oh, God, what was that trigger? There was a button in there <laughs> that someone pressed. And I have to go back through the steps of my process. Like, okay, so what was that? In that sense, your process is ongoing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I do elevators probably at least once a week. I'm doing an elevator and something like, like oh, what was I doing? You know, what was I really thinking there? Or I will go back and look at a pattern that I have and go, oh, you know what? This is that pattern that's playing out now. How do I reprocess that? How do I convert that onto know, the right road? On the right road, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I give an example of what I got really upset. This, this happened a couple of days ago. This probably happens to you too. So everyone gets these calls from these scam artists who are trying to tell you that, oh, um, you know, we're from Amazon and someone just bought an iPad on your account and we're, we're just trying to get it all straight. And it's like, first of all, I never bought anything from Amazon. I don't have an account there. I have not bought an iPad. I know this is a scam, right? And so I just went off on the guy saying, look, you, I curse this guy. Like, you better stop calling here. And I said, you know, Gerald, you can't do that. For my own health. Afterwards, you said you can't do that. Right. But I realized that I had got triggered because, you know, if I think if someone's trying to cheat me, okay, but where does that come from? And why do you have to get so upset about it? Okay. Even though this guy is certainly a scam artist, I mean, they happen all the time, right? I could just hang up and block this thing and move on. So there was something in your reaction. That's right. That had you say, let me take a deeper look at this. Right. And particularly to, for self-protection, because I don't really need to have like anger explosions at my age because, you know, heart pressure, blood pressure, all kind of stuff. You know, I mean, you can take yourself out with some of this, make yourself really sick with this stuff. Right. It's completely unnecessary. Yeah. You know, be careful about that. Gerald, I'm grateful for this conversation. And Oh, thank you so much and for taking as a, the time. As a Hoffman teacher, I'm grateful for your service on the board and the stewardship of the organization. My pleasure. It was a, it was a gift to me. I tell that. It's just the wonderful people I met, the wonderful experience working with, with Liza and Raz, who was just tip-top people, the, the, the members of the board, the people I've met, and just an opportunity to, to give back. I enjoyed every minute of it, and I hope to still be, you know, around on the advisory board or, you know, whatever else that people may need me to do for them somehow. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to Hoffman Institute.
www.ghostbusters.org.